Um, when I was uh, in Cal stationed in California, and I know we've got some uh, recent California transplants here, uh, I went to a uh, monastery with my chapel team, and we had a little offsite. You know, it's a big thing in the military, have an offsite. Go have fun somewhere and plan about what you're going to do. And before lunch, the monks invited us, and I think it was a part of the package that we paid for to have the conference room, and we got to eat with them, and it was not a, a real fancy meal, I'll tell you that. It was soup and some really good bread and, uh, I think, water, but when they got ready to pray, their prayer was, holy, 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 and in the acoustics of that room and predominance of male voices, there were ladies in the room singing as well. There were women on my our, our staff. But uh, that song moves you to tears if you really look at it and think it and understand holy, holy, holy. And thank you. It goes so well with the text that we're going to uh, use today. Um, I have a thing for compasses. And just by bringing them out, in fact, I had to borrow this one from my daughter. Those of you who were around when I retired, I know there are some of you who are here who are at my retirement ceremony. I gave each one of my kids one of these. This is like, and I'm trying to connect with the younger people, but yet this is so old of an illustration, it may not work. When I say the character from Toy Story, Stinky Pete, he's new in the box. These are brand new in the box from World War II, Army Air Corps compasses. And to have the box makes it far more collectible, and then to have the cloth that it came in makes it even better. And then, of course, if it works, I mean, that's a real good thing, you know, and you got a little pop-open top here like a kind of a pocket watch, and there you have your compass. And, and compasses, like I said, I started collecting them. Um, this was actually a gift... Uh, it says it's from 1917 uh, from London, but I know it was bought in Afghanistan by one of my chaplain assistants, and we joked that I'm sure it wasn't made in London. <laughs> it's probably brand new, but it looks old, so uh, he got it for me, and it's a pretty, pretty cool compass to have. But compasses, when they are working correctly, point where? Point north, exactly. And Christians when they are functioning properly, point to Christ. That's why, as a military chaplain, I gave out compasses to many of the retiring chaplains that I knew, to other uh, men and women when they retired. It was kind of my go-to gift. Always be a reminder of pointing to the one you serve. The little magnetic net needle in a compass uh, floating in fluid bounces around until it identifies magnetic north, which is thanks to our the core of the earth, which is magnetic, and actually we have two poles, and that's far more science project that I should get into or that you would want to know. But although they are made to point north, on occasion, magnetic error, deviation, or some other thing can have an effect to where the compass doesn't point correctly. In my office before the sermon, I was saying that, and I've got to tell it, I had an army buddy. I gave him one as he was getting to retire, and I had a, a two choices because these are Army Air Corps days prior to Air Force. And I said, do you want the one that looks really shiny like a good Air Force one would or the one that's all beat up kind of like an army guy would have because it's been actually used? He said, well, what's the difference? I said, well, the army one that I have, 
it is completely 180 out. It points south instead of north. He said, the Air Force has always gone in the wrong direction. I'll take that one. Well, some compasses, in fact, the airplanes that I flew, and those, Dean's not here today, but usually they have not only one that is powered by a vacuum pump, there's one setting in fluid, and it has a screw, it has adjustments, and you'll have a little placard on it that will tell you the variations that you might have on that compass in different positions that you would be in and uh, places in the United States. Because as the United States, if you have a, a flight map, it'll show you the various magnetic differences across the country. And when you have a compass that has gone out of true north, you can make adjustments, and you would want to make adjustments before you would discard it. Likewise, I think with many Christians, over the years I have found some of us who need adjustments, that we somehow are no longer pointing true north, we're no longer pointing to our Savior, but we're headed on a different heading away from Him. Enter our text today. John the Baptist was a compass pointing to the Savior Jesus. He said, here's the true light who comes, one that I am not worthy to even untie his sandals. He announces basically the preeminence of who Jesus is by comparison to John. Because you know, many thought John would be the Messiah. Many wanted to follow John, but John says, Jesus is greater than I. He who came after me, John is older, you remember that, they're cousins, but he who comes after me is the one. Now that's John the Baptist, and through these first 18 verses, this preamble, this prologue, if you will, to the Gospel of John, the author, John the Evangelist, has been introducing who Jesus is. And I think John the Evangelist, the author, is also acting as a compass, pointing us to who Jesus is. He's told us that he is God. He who was with God, verse 1, who was with God from the very beginning. He was God. He is God in all things that are created. Nothing has been created except by him and through him. He's told us that he is the light. He tells us that he is the truth. And he tells us that by understanding him and learning of him, you will see his grace, experience his grace, and the glory of the Lord. So not only do we have his deity, his life, his light, the incarnation that we talked about in verse 14 last week, but the glory. And today in these final verses of the prologue, we have the essential message of the gospel of John. In fact, if you don't read any, and I would challenge you to read along as we do this, you know, as we're going through this, this Gospel of John over the coming months, maybe years, I, how to talk about how long is it going to take you to get through the Gospel of John? A while, in a while. But these first 18 verses really put it all together. And these final few verses today tell us that the Word has become flesh and that that grace of Christ Jesus extends to us to be able to reveal the glory of the Father. So, I'm going to read verse 14. I don't even think I put it in the, uh, the proclaimed slides today. But I'll read you verse 14 that we talked about last week. And then let you just give you a heads up. Many commentators don't like the fact that verse 15 is in there. Not that it's bad. It's like a preacher losing thought and chasing a rabbit, which I do all the time. But 
it really flows better if you read 14 to 16. Because it's like John the evangelist is saying, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Oh, by the way, here's John the Baptist, and then comes back to Jesus. So he inserts something in verse 15, but now that you know that, you'll be expecting it. So here we go, verse 14. Do me a favor, stand as we read the gospel. Reverence to God's word, not to me by any means. For John writes, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. There's this, you know, break. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, who comes after me, has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have received one blessing after another. Some translations may say grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only. Some will say the begotten, in other words, the Son of God, who is at the Father's side, King James says bosom, I like that, and has made him known. It shows the intimacy of the position of Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? Father, as we look at familiar text, teach us. Reveal to us who Christ is and who he should be in our lives. Like hands on a compass pointing either north or south, east or west, or somewhere in between. Draw us to you and let us point to the grace, the truth, and the glory of Jesus. For this we pray in his name. And everybody said? Amen. Very good. Have a seat. So, <clears throat> as we're talking about, in fact, I, I know a compass really only has one hand. They don't have hands like a clock, but it kind of worked for my sermon illustration. So, let's talk about the hand of grace. That's the first thing I want us to look at. Have you ever had a paper clip? And maybe in scouts or school, uh, Allison, you ever done this with your kid? Do you have do you have to teach science too? I'm sure, right? You teach it all. You ever have do it have them make a compass out of a paperclip? It's kind of a MacGyver thing, you know. MacGyver that I know when I start talking about old people. MacGyver, there's a new MacGyver and an old MacGyver. Oh, you know the old MacGyver, yeah, the new MacGyver, pocket knife guy, right? He can like you know fly an airplane with a pocket knife. But if if you take take a, a paperclip similar to this one or usually smaller ones work the best because they're lighter and you can uh, do a number of things you can take a magnet and like you're shaving it like a like a knife keep it going away bringing it back up out of its polarity and up again it eventually will magnetize this little piece of wire and then you put it like if you're a scout you put it on a leaf in your cup your canteen cup or your hand of water and that leaf because it's light it will turn and it will actually point north and that's pretty cool to me i thought you know you can do it with a battery too you can walk i know some of you are losing it so i'll just stop right there <laughs> compasses they're they're really great um but the thing of it is if you don't mark the right end you won't know which way it's pointing in fact i almost showed you a video today that I had seen of a scout showing how to do it. And it was an adult. He's doing it and doing it. Man, he's got it. And it, it turns perfectly. But he puts his compass beside it to see which way is north. So I thought, 
Well, if you didn't know which way was north, well, maybe you could tell it with the sun or other things like that or the stars. But I thought, that's so funny. You could train it to go somewhere, but you've got to train it and be able to know it's going in the right direction. Have you ever seen a follower of Jesus point away from Christ? Here's a harder question. Have you ever been that person? Ask yourself, when others see me and my life, are they pointed towards Jesus, towards love and forgiveness, or are they pointed towards pride and hatred and prejudice and anger, hate, everything that is the polar opposite of grace? John says that Christ is the source of grace. If you're going to take your little wire and rub it on a magnet, rub it on Jesus. Over and over. Wrap the wire around Christ and see that this thing is now polarized to point towards his grace. Now, John uses two words for grace, and those of you know, I, there's very... I talked to you last week, I think, or a week before, I said fun with Mun. That was my Greek professor. The best thing that Dr. Mun did for us when we had taken at least one year of Greek, and I, those of you who have studied other languages, I, I don't speak Spanish. I really wish I did. And that's one of my dreams has always been for our church to have Spanish classes and English classes. Those who don't think their English is good enough, well enough, they don't want me teaching it. But they could have an English class here, and those who don't speak Spanish or would like to, we could have a Spanish class here. And then you could maybe use the Bible to be the textbook, and, you know, that's in my mind. But Dr. Munn had us always memorizing vocabulary words. So I probably know a good 500 or more Greek words. May not have remembered all the endings to tell you whether it's an adverb or, you know, what tense it is, whether it's perfect or aorist or past or present or future or whatever. But in any event, the one I always remember is, is keros. That's the word for grace. And here John says grace. He uses one word for grace because they have endings just like Spanish and French. You know, has different endings on it sometimes for the gender of the word. He says grace and then he uses another word and then he says grace again. And the big definition or the big explanation of the different Bibles you have, some will say grace upon grace. Anybody got a Bible that says grace upon grace? New American Standard, what is it? What is it? And it's your New American Standard. I know we just talked about that. Uh, mine, I think, blows it. And even though I use the NIV, I, was, I went to seminary on New American Standard. It says... From the fullness of his grace, we have received one blessing after another. You should have said even grace after grace. Because the way that middle word, which is, is I guess you would call it here, I have to think, it's, it's a preposition, really. Um, it can be for exchange of, it can be upon, or it can be uh, something in return. And you wonder, how can you exchange anything for grace. I mean, if you've got grace, the only thing you can get better than that is grace, right? So in some ways, I can see how John is writing, from Christ comes grace, and from grace even more grace. Grace upon grace. 
But I wonder how many Christians in their lives have exchanged something that the world has to offer for God's grace. They've chosen to follow what the world provides rather than the grace that comes through knowing Jesus Christ. Now, I know I've got to tread lightly here because, uh, as all times, I, when I step on your toes, I usually step on my own. We have hobbies. We have um, possessions. We have sports. Uh, you have cars, perhaps. You have families. Those things that compete for the grace that comes through knowing Jesus. How many times have you exchanged or traded the eternal joy of Christ for the temporary joy of a movie? I'm going to start laughing. Mark and Cynthia Thomas, we were stationed together at uh, Keesler, and they had Sunday school on Wednesday night. And I, I was a senior chaplain, so I didn't really have to be there. And I think Cynthia either taught the class or attended the classes. She taught, you taught, didn't you? Every week. And, and quite frequently, Mark and I, because <clears throat> Brenda had already moved here to San Antonio with the kids, and I was trying to get my assignment to come to San Antonio, so I, I'm a, a geo bachelor is what, you know, the military calls it. I lived on a boat in the marina at, at Keesler Air Force Base. And uh, Mark, uh, you going to Sunday school? Word on Wednesday, what was it called there? Wow. Wow, something like that, yeah. Um, well, what, do you, what do you have in mind? I said, well, you know, there's a good movie playing down at the theater. So through my sinful actions, I influenced my friend to take temporary joy over eternal joy from Jesus. And I know that's a small, yeah, you know, going to the movies, not going, going golfing on Sunday, going hunting on Sunday morning, going fishing. I mean, all the things that you might do in lieu of worship are not in and of themselves of the devil. But when you allow anything that this world has to take you away from the joy of the Savior, your compass may need a little adjustment. It's hard to say going to a Spurs game, but, you know, I knew you guys would throw the rotten tomatoes at that point. And then the other thing, you know, I, 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 you've traded things. I mean, in school, I never, I, we just talked about this Friday night or whenever. I served chili the other day, and, and um, my kids were like, why do we eat peanut butter on crackers when we're eating chili? Anybody do that? Yeah. Oh, it has to be crunchy, too. I just want you to know. You know, the weirdness just keeps going. Why? Because in the little school that I went to, from kindergarten to eighth grade, it was the same school, you know, elementary school, and it was elementary, junior high, all combined. When, when, the, when the school served chili, we got a half a slice of a peanut butter sandwich. And peanut butter and chili, I was from five or four years old. I went to kindergarten at four through starting high school. You, if you had chili, you had to have peanut butter. That's just the way it was. But... Where I'm going with that, some of you might have had sack lunches. Anybody ever trade your sack lunch for somebody else's sack lunch? And did you get a bad trade? <laughs> Don't trade away Jesus. Grace traded for grace and grace more abundantly. 
Now, here's a guy. I'm a, you may have heard of this guy. His name is Kyle. I got it in my pocket. I was going to, oh, actually, I bent it up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was red, too. Kyle McDonald is the guy we heard about from, I think, 2005 and 2006 that took a red paperclip and eventually kept trading and trading and trading and traded it for a house. Show us a video clip, guys. In Canada, we found a guy who traded a paper clip worth zero dollars with a house that is worth more than a hundred thousand dollars. Hi, Nas Daily. I'm Kyle. And this paperclip changed my life. He started small. He traded the red paperclip for a pen. Then he traded the pen for a doorknob. The doorknob for a camp stove. The camp stove for a generator. And trade after trade after trade, what he got was bigger, better, and crazier. Before he knew it, Kyle got all the way to a role at a Hollywood movie. Then a town in Canada wanted that movie role. So in return, they gave Kyle a two-story house for free. Kyle won this house just by trading. Trade is how the world works. When you trade, even a simple paperclip can turn into a house. That's one minute. See you tomorrow. That's trading up, isn't it? And I think if you could practice that in your faith, trade what you would prefer to give away, the bad lunch, give the good lunch to others. Give the grace of Christ to others and watch how grace comes upon grace in your life. There are two people, there's a picture there, and there's another, and I know I, I will try to be brief. The next picture in there, yeah, the, the guy on the left is uh, Joseph Parker, my left, yeah, your left still, uh, Joseph Parker. Uh, who was a congregational pastor in London during the same time that Charles Spurgeon on the right was a pastor. Uh, Spurgeon's Baptist, called the Prince of Peach Preachers, very uh, scripted manuscript guy, uh, gigantic words, um, exegeting the scripture, etc., etc. Parker was far more uh, just spontaneous, uh, not very much uh, an exegetist. In fact, sometimes he just talked about his own meditation for the day but had a powerful following at the same time. These two men became good friends, but yet also pretty big rivals in London, once again, late 1800s, prior to the internet, prior to telephones, you know, being able to communicate what was going on from one to another. Um, they always had a reporter in the congregation, and that reporter, maybe sometimes two in Spurgeon's, I'm told in Spurgeon's church, it was so large, at least two reporters, who are taking down exactly what they're saying. That way they can put it in the paper or at least have it to see if they said something, you know, inflammatory towards the royalty or whatever. Well, one time, and Spurgeon was known, he started Spurgeon's college. He had a preaching college. He had uh, an orphanage. And Parker, in one of his sermons, says about Spurgeon's orphanage, the terrible state of the orphans who come to Spurgeon's orphanage. Spurgeon hears through the grapevine that Parker has said, what a terrible state of the orphans in Spurgeon's orphanage. So you can imagine, being the Baptist that he was, Spurgeon gets up the next week and hammers Parker with his opinion and, you know, saying, how dare he, etc., etc., you know, tear down this orphanage that we're, I'm trying to help these young men and you know, boys and girls, trying to, you know, help them, feed them, clothe them, give them all this that they're doing, and he is 
hammering on my orphanage. Well, of course, he got it wrong. So after that sermon, everyone goes to Parker's church the following week to see what Parker is going to say. Hundreds upon hundreds, according to all those. And I tried to research this over and over. There's far more. They have a lengthier debate about theology later in their lives, but there's far more on that than this particular event. But they both had commented on their orphanage, on Spurgeon's orphanage. In any event, Parker gets up to preach, and everybody's waiting to see what he's going to, or hear what he's going to say. And he said, I understand that Dr. Spurgeon is ill today, so uh, we, we want to pray for him. But I also found out that this is the Sunday that Spurgeon at Metropolitan Tabernacle, which was the name of his church, typically takes an offering for his orphanage. Let us take a love offering today. And as the tale goes, they had to uh, empty the offering plates three times because they had collected so much money for that orphanage. That's Sunday. On Tuesday, Spurgeon knocks on Parker's door and comes in, at, you know, allows him to come in, not swinging or wanting to hit, but probably ready to cry, and embraces Parker and says, You gave me not what I deserved, but what I needed. You gave me grace. That's what God does to you and me. He offers to us what we need, not what we deserve. And let me tell you, grace is not always soft and easy. Are we singing Amazing Grace later on? My chain? Yeah. There's a line in there that says, um, I don't want to start singing it. <laughs> Dangerous. Uh, grace that taught me to fear, right? Isn't there a line that, my heart to fear. So grace that sometimes may cause you to want to or need to let go of some things. That way grace can pour over you and let things be released in your life. I used a lot of flying illustrations when I was flying a lot with an instructor learning. At some point when you get the airplane in a bad situation or the, air, or the instructor wants to show you something, the instructor will say, male or female, my airplane. And that is your sign as a student to let go, feed off the rudders, let that instructor do what they want to show you. Either you've got it so messed up you're almost upside down or whatever and they're going to write it back, or they want to show you something like how to land or a slow flight or whatever. And many times in our lives we need to let Christ take over my life, your life. And you let go and say, God, you got it from here. So hands of grace, hands of grace. And finally as I want to scoot right on through here, trust. And that goes with that whole, that's kind of a slide into that. You have to trust that person that they're going to be able to write the airplane or they're going to be able to show you something new. And if, if I was to say a name now, I, I was told in the staff meeting this week that I used Danny Thomas last week and said, ask your parents who Danny Thomas is. And some of the kids look at their parents and their parents are like, I don't know. So I need to say sometimes on some of my illustrations, ask your grandparents. So if I said, do you know who Elvis Presley is or was? Ask your parents, ask your grandparents, although I think he died in 1977. He had a song once, uh, Seeing is Believing, in one of his gospel hits. And I know uh, our local uh, country uh, troubadour is George Strait. He has a song that says, I saw God today. There are ways at times that the heading points us in the direction of the Lord, and you need to believe before you can see. 
Because once you understand who Christ is and have experienced his forgiveness and experienced the grace that John says comes through him, he says in this passage that no one has seen God except for the one who came from his bosom, the one who was sitting on his lap, the one who is the only begotten of God. And if you've seen him, you have seen the glory of God. Jesus himself in John 14, verse 9, will say to Philip, when Philip says, Show us the way, Lord, show us God. He says, Hey, man, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So trust the eyes of faith. Trust the believing heart to say, Show me, Father, who you are and what you want to do in my life. Now, as we close out this passage... Consider, as we've looked at this, that John tells us, both, both Johns tell us, that Jesus is the Son of God. And that by gazing on Him, by believing in Him, you will experience the grace, the truth, and the glory of the Father. Would you stand with me, please, we pray. Father, as we now come to a time of invitation, perhaps there's one here who has never fix their eyes on Christ. We pray that this would be the time in which we can point them towards you. Father, I'll stand here in front of the pulpit area, and if there's one who wants to come, perhaps we, our prayer team members will be here, and if they want to pray, we can do that. We don't worry about the clock. Yes, we're going to share communion, and we don't want to take any time away from that. But Lord, it's your time right now. Call your folks to respond to the gospel message. For we ask it in Jesus' name.